In Psalm 56, the psalmist writes, Thou tellest my wonderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. In God will I praise his word, in the Lord will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. The psalmist desires, he deeply desires that God would not forget. That God would not forget the sorrows of our heart, the tears he wants God to, to, to keep those tears in a bottle, a bottle that will be preserved, that will, that will be, um, so that they can be requited. And he has confidence that God has those tears, those sorrows, those moments, those, um, that confusion, that perplexity. God has all of that in his book. And so the, the psalmist takes great comfort from the reality that God knows. Jesus knows. God knows all of his sorrows, his comfort is found to the point that he says, I will praise God, I will praise his word, and the Lord, I will praise him in God, have I put my trust, I will not be afraid. His confidence that God will not forget, that God knows, that God has, and he hasn't catching them in this bottle, God is able to make all things right. And so he just throws his confidence And his, notice his joy, his praise onto the Lord. So that even in tears, there is not the the loss of joy. I want to speak to you this morning on comfort. A very specific kind of comfort. Comfort for God's people when loved ones die without giving clear evidence of a work of grace in their heart. Okay? So, even though that's very specific... That's probably the, the, the um, I would say that com- comes close to being the greatest of potential sorrows. And so if there are other um, sorrows, other uh, needs that are not satisfactorily met that go below that, you can find comfort for these things in this message as well. This message comes from, of course, from having uh, Brother Zach's uh, brother, my uncle, uh, pass away earlier this week. And the, really the joy of observing him and his sisters as they process this loss of one whom they loved so much. John writes in one of his letters, he says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. The longer I live, the more that resonates with me. There really is no greater joy. And for those that you love, to love the one that you love. To those that you love, to have the hope of spending eternal life by the grace of God, the great grace of God. And and let me just back up for a minute. I'm so comforted by the, the fact that it's not just me preaching this message, but it was amazing to me in the song service how many of the comforts that we find from God's Word for these kind of situations, we sang them. 
So you were being ministered to. I was being ministered to uh, through the songs that we sang. I thought about just getting up and reading all the songs we sang. Let that be the message. I'm not going to do that. Um, but, but elections, comfort. Um, uh, I can't recall the other ones. But, but every song it seemed like, uh, my grace is sufficient for you, uh, was, was around this theme. There's really no greater joy than to see those that you love walk in truth, walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, to know the God of truth. Jesus said, this is life eternal, that, you might, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent. There's no greater joy. For those that you love the most, the, 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 you desire to give them the greatest gifts. So you, as Jesus said, the Father who loves his son will not give a stone to his son if he asks for bread. He's going to give his son the greatest thing he can give. And yet the reality is the thing that we um, would love to give the most to those that we love, we are unable to give. Salvation is a work of God. As Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. And when our minds are right, we take the greatest solace in that. Because the reality is, no matter how much cajoling, no matter how eloquent the words, no matter how convincing uh, the argument, no matter how good your apologetics might be, there is nothing that you and I can do to take a stony heart and make it a heart of flesh. We are, God has not given us that power. That power completely, totally, absolutely resides with God. That's sobering, isn't it? And yet it is also relieving. It is comforting. It is the greatest of comforts to know that salvation lies in the hand and the power and the sovereignty and the mind of God. And yet this is a real subject, isn't it? Listen to some of the words of Jesus. Let's turn to the book of John for just a minute. I'm going to read a few portions from the Gospel of John. These are the words of Jesus. John chapter 5. Jesus says this in verse 38. Speaking to those whom Jesus, of course, knows perfectly. So he's able to read the hearts. He knows those who belong to him. He knows those who he will give faith to. And he knows those who he will not give faith to. He knows those whom the Father gave to him before the world began. And he knows those who the Father did not give to him before the world began. So Jesus is able to speak to people with great certainty that you and I are not able to have. We don't have the same certainty that Jesus has. But Jesus speaks very directly to these people. Listen to what he says in John 5 verse 38. He says, And ye have not his word... Abiding in you, for whom he hath sent, Jesus, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, the Old Testament, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Listen to that. You will not come to me that ye might have life. John chapter 8, John 8, reading in verse 42, Jesus said unto them, again, Jesus can speak with certainty, Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, 
What striking words, what, what, what condemning words those were. These are people who were convinced that God was their father because they could trace their lineage back to God through God's promise to Abraham. But Jesus says to them, God is not your father. If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not, why do you not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot, there's a blindness on the heart, the veil has not been lifted by God's grace, but even because ye cannot hear my word, ye are of your father, the devil. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, all men have not faith. In Hebrews 11, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And not every man, not every woman, not every person has faith. Faith is, uh, 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 salvation is not by genealogy. Salvation is not by lineage. Salvation is not by works. Salvation is wholly and completely by the grace of God. And all men have not faith. Paul would also say in 2 Thessalonians that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. This is something that's in the future. He is coming. He's going to be admired by many, many of those that believe, but he's coming in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that obey not the gospel of the Son of God. Let me just read that and get it just right. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. To you are troubled, this is verse 7, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in them that believe. Notice that great contrast. The Lord is coming to be glorified in his saints, to be magnified and to be admired by those whom he has given the gift to believe. And he is also coming to punish those with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, this separation from the mercies of God and from the glory of His power. It's important that in our day and time that we not blur or obscure our minds from this great truth. Heaven is real and it will be populated by millions of children of grace and hell is is real and will be populated by many who do, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's sobering, isn't it? It's very sobering and it's very true. So the comfort that we find must not be silly comfort. It must not be comfort that ignores the reality that there is a real heaven and a real earth. There is real salvation and there is real damnation we must, not com- we must not find a false comfort, a fake comfort. The world offers this all the time, doesn't it? The world just seeks to des- desensitize our minds and numb our minds from this great truth just by being silly. 
I saw an obituary yesterday. I won't try to repeat it, but it just, it, 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 was, it was over the top silly. It was over the top seeking to glorify just what a, 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 a licentious and, um, and just um, pedal to the metal into all kinds of sinfulness life this man had lived. And it was written in a very humorous way. In fact, as I was reading it, I started to laugh and I realized, this is not funny. <laughs> this is not funny. There are people who are taking comfort in just being able to, to laugh away the reality that their loved one has lived his life and now he is, he's gone. He's gone to an eternal place. The soul never dies. So we must not find a silly comfort. We must not find a comfort that rests somehow in our works where we will find works that we, that we, um, that we uh, just zero in on and say, so this one must be a child of God because they were a good person or because they were kind or because they were fun or because for instance, salvation is not by works. I think the lack of comfort usually stems from our efforts to go to a place that God has not allowed us to go. From seeking information, from seeking to understand what God hasn't given us to understand. You've heard the verse quoted many times in Deuteronomy 29. 29, I think it's a very important verse. And in, in that chapter in Deuteronomy 29, Moses is, is un, unveiling for the people of Israel what will occur in the future if they follow God and if they don't follow God. And most of the chapter is just this very uh, visual uh, and, and, and colorful description of God's judgment upon them if they don't obey the covenant that God has given to them. And it's, it really just begs all kinds of questions. Like, God, when are you going to do this? And are you really going to do it like this? And is it going to be, really be this like this? I don't understand this, God. And the very end of the chapter seems to sort of jump to a different subject, but it doesn't, it's not a different subject. He just says this. He says, the secret things belong to God. The secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us. Paraphrasing that we may obey the revealed things that God has given to us. Part of what we take from that is that there is much, much, much that is not revealed to us concerning God. There are many things that only God knows. Among those are His reasons for what He does and His reasons for what He doesn't do. There is much about God that we don't know. We are not given, thank the Lord, access to the Lamb's book of life while we're living here in this time. We can say what we see, but God has not placed, praise the Lord, God has not placed the authority of judgment, eternal judgment, into our hands. And so, he says, the secret things belong to God. There are many things, many, many things about God we don't know. Many things about His ways. Many things about His will. Much about God that we don't know, but there is much about God that we do know. And that which we do know about God is given to us. It's unveiled to us for our good, including our comfort. For our obedience, for our comfort, for our hope. And so in that same vein of Deuteronomy 29, 29, turn to Isaiah 55. 
This re, uh, Isaiah would say that this reality that there is much we don't know about God is not meant to drive us away from God, but it's meant to cause us to seek God even more. Isn't that something? He's not saying you can't understand God, so just leave God alone. He's saying you can't understand God, so seek after God. Listen to this. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Now, why might a wicked man say, I I can't seek after the Lord? Because a wicked man doesn't understand the Lord. A wicked man would say, I don't want to seek after the Lord because the Lord's going to zap me. The Lord knows everything about me. He knows just how wicked I've been. He, he might even say somebody who, who has walked to the Lord in the past and doesn't want to return because he just feels so guilty. The Lord knows everything about me. The Lord knows how guilty I am. The Lord knows how much I've blasphemed His name. The Lord knows how I have ignored His word. The Lord knows how much I have resented Him. The Lord knows all these things. I, I can't seek after the Lord. And here's what, here's what the, the verse says. It says, forsake your way because of this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, That it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that groweth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Isn't that beautiful language? When he tells us that my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, that is in the context of mercy. Of mercy. Let the wicked man forsake his ways and return to the Lord because God is more merciful than you and I would ever choose to be. God is more gracious than you and I could ever imagine. And what the Lord desires to come to pass, the Lord will bring it to pass. His word will not return to him void. So run to the Lord. Run to the Lord. Seek Him while He may be found. And so the reality that there's much about God we don't understand should cause us to run after God because He may be more merciful to us. In fact, I can promise you this, He will be far more merciful to you. And so in your questions and in your perplexity and in your doubts and in your sorrow, do not allow that to cause you to run from the Lord, but instead run to the Lord with your sorrows. Run to the Lord with your need for mercy. Walk in the light. Don't walk in speculative prying, but walk in seeking after the Lord. Okay, so comfort, comfort for God's people. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Can I just tell you that there is comfort to be found in every 
situation in life. Isn't that amazing? There is real comfort. The word comfort means... It, it, it means ease. It means to alleviate distress. To alleviate, to, to lift the burden off distress. There is real comfort. Not fake comfort, not silly comfort, not the world's comfort, not a comfort that is not really comfortable. The, the prophets who were false prophets in the Old Testament would, would speak comfortable words when they had no business speaking comfortable words. They would lie to the people. They would lie and say, all is well. And so go feel good about yourself when all was not well. So comfort doesn't just mean to pat somebody on the back and say, it's all going to be okay. Comfort means the real alleviation of distress through eternal truths. Now remember that. As the people of God, let us not be those who provide silly false comfort. But there is comfort. And it's real. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 and following is some of the best language in all the scripture. Blessed be God. Even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies. And the God of all comfort. Who comforteth us in all our tribulation. That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. By the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. We could spend a lot of time here. Let me just notice a few things. Notice that twice in this passage we have the word Father. He chose that language on purpose, didn't he? He is the Father. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one who sent Jesus Christ as His Father into the world for our comfort. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the Father of mercies. Notice also how it says the word all several times. And any, all comfort. He comforted us in all, not just, not just uh, picking and choosing uh, the, the best ones for the advertisement, but in all our tribulation. That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. What good news that is. There's a Father. You have a Father in heaven. He is the Father of Jesus Christ. He is the Father of mercies. We see a very tender picture of God here, don't we? A very tender picture of God. A father who stoops down in mercy towards his children for this purpose to bring comfort to them in every single tribulation that they might be able to comfort others who are undergoing tribulation as well. God is our source of comfort. Think about James chapter 5. James 5 verse 11, speaking of Job, it says this, it says, You have seen the patience of Job, and you have seen the end of the, you have heard of the patience of Job, and you have seen the end of the Lord. That the Lord is, what, very pitiful. He's full of pity. And full of tender mercies. Psalm 146, I'll read three verses from Psalm 146. 
Verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. But verse 5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Verse 8. The Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. The Lord raiseth them that are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous. So don't, don't, don't look for false help in man. But happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help. And the promise of the Lord is that the Lord will open the eyes of the blind and the Lord will raise those who are bowed down. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. John Gill said this about 2 Corinthians 1. Listen to this. There is no solid comfort but what comes from Him. Whatever consolation the saints enjoy, they have it from God. The Father of Christ. And the consolation, listen to this, the consolation they have from Him through Christ in a covenant way is not small. And for which they have great reason to bless the Lord. So the comfort that God gives are not small in every situation. So even the what seems to us the saddest, the most, the most bleak of situations, the comfort that God brings, if you will find His comfort, is not small. It's huge. And will cause us to bless the name of the Lord. So let's think about this. Let's think about comforts for God's children. Comforts for God's children when loved ones die without clear evidence of a work of grace within. Well, I'm going to do this in a sort of a Trinitarian way. Comforts we get from the Father... Comforts we receive from the Son, and then finally comforts we receive from the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Father of life, the Father of mercies, the Father of Jesus Christ, the Father of our salvation. God the Father is the Father of all comfort. He is the God of all comfort. And so one of the first comforts that we can think about that we get from God that we might not think about otherwise is that life, life, life right here on earth, life itself is a gift from God. The Father. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. See, it's tempting in a situation like this. It's tempting to think that if we don't get everything we want, it's all been a waste. So, so in other words, if I don't have the assurance that I'm going to spend eternity with this one that I love so much, then then what's the point of the life here that's been lived below? And that's a wrong way of looking at it. The life that we've been given right here is not a waste. The life that we're living right now is a gift from God. And it is God who, who sets up families. It's God who gives the gift of life, of brothers, of sisters, of fathers, of mothers, of uncles, of aunts, of nephews and nieces. And every single one of these is a gift from God. And so the good things that God has given in terms of good lives lived together, in terms of memories, are and should be 
a great comfort to God's people as they see that this life lived with this loved one was a gift from God. We don't, now there's a silly way to do that, right? We don't put all of our hope and memories. We don't put all of our, uh, uh, we don't put all of our, uh, uh, put, um, we don't equate salvation with memories. But friends, memories are a gift from God. They are. Life is a gift from God. I would tell you, treasure the life that you live with the ones that God has given you. Use the life that God has given you with the ones who God has given you, whether they be those who are children of God or not. Use those and appreciate those and live them to the, to the, to the fullest that you can. I'm thankful that my father had a brother who he got to cut wood with. Even when they didn't have the most, the most um, precious things in common. I'm thankful that my father had a brother who cared for him in some of daddy's deepest sorrows and griefs. I'm thankful that daddy was able to care for his brother in some of his deepest sorrows and griefs. That life lived together is a value. Life is a gift from God. It's a way that God has enriched our lives. And so there is value to be had even in memories that are held in appropriate measure as a gift from God. But there are deeper comforts from the Father, aren't there? The Father of mercies is the Father of our salvation. And our salvation is fully and totally and completely held in the hands of God. And there's comfort there. Let me point you to one comfort that's that's, that's found there. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul, you can just imagine... You can just imagine Paul's grief as Paul is, is, is moving towards the day that he will be martyred for Jesus Christ. He's imprisoned in his most confined imprisonment that he's ever experienced. Most of his friends have abandoned him. And then there are false teachers who are teaching false doctrine that the resurrection of Christ has already come. And they're leading away people uh, with their teaching. And Paul is talking to Timothy, and Timothy's obviously very, very discouraged. He's about to give up uh, all hope. So Paul is writing this letter to encourage Timothy, and as Paul is, 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 is trying to stir him up and instruct him and teach him, he says this in chapter 2. Just give a little context. Verse 17, Their word will eat as of a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, these are two of these false teachers, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Paul says it appears that some are just leaving the faith, and they're lost forever. He doesn't know this, but he says this. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. There is one thing, one truth, that we can completely and totally set our feet down on. And it will be stable. And it will be unmovable. And nothing's going to change with this. In a changing world, we see people all over us, all around us, disappointing us. And going in the wrong direction. And seeming to just cast the faith away. Because we have a sure foundation to set our feet on. And it is this. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. That's good news, isn't it? 
The Lord knoweth them that are His. Part of the comfort there is that the Lord's not going to lose anything. God will not lose one single sheep that strays. He will leave the 99 to gather the sheep back. He will not lose one to whom He gave His Son to die to redeem them from their sins. They will not be lost. The Lord knows them that are His. They belong to Him. God is the God of... He's the author of salvation and He's the completer of salvation. But there's one other comfort here. It says the Lord knows. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. This is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The Lord knows things that you and I don't know. Now let's be careful with this. It would be easy to conjure this into a silly hope. We don't want to do that. But what we can say is this, Lord, you know, you know all those that are yours. Lord, I could not detect one thing that would give me hope for my loved one. But God, I know this. I know your hand is not too short that it cannot save. And I know, Lord, that you put the story of the thief on the cross in the Bible for a reason. And so I can see what you can do, Lord. And I know, Lord, that you are able, so you pierce, the word of God is is, is quick and, and, and it pierces past the dividing of, of asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, I know that you can even pierce through the, through the conscious when one is not even responding anymore. And Lord, if you want to, you can turn their heart in the very last second. Here's what I do know, Lord. I know that you have revealed to us that sometime between conception and death, you're going to bring every child of God to faith Jesus Christ. You're going to do that, Lord. That's your work. And so, Lord, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make a silly argument. But, Father, what I'm going to do is I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to rest in your goodness. I'm going to rest in your love. I'm going to rest in your salvation. I'm going to remind myself that salvation is and always has been by grace Holy by grace and not by works. That there is no one who can boast. Not those who have lived the longest lives of greatest devotion. I can't boast. They have to say it's, all of, it's been all of the Lord. I'm going I'm to rest. I'm going to rejoice, Lord, in your great comfort that you give through election. That before time began, you chose, out of your own purpose and grace, a people to enjoy the inheritance that you have given to Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, that you and your sovereignty and your goodness and your mercy sent Jesus Christ to die for the sins of all those that you gave to him. And that Christ's death was full and it was complete. It was specific. It was targeted toward all those that you had given to him. And that not one drop of his blood was shed in vain. And that the greatest resistor, the greatest heart, the hardest flesh cannot resist the grace of God that brings salvation to all of those who belong to him. You're not going to lose one, Lord. 
And so, Lord, if, if, if it was in your pleasure, I don't know this. You haven't given to me the book of life. But, Lord, we're going to see it one day. If it was in your pleasure to give salvation in those last moments to my loved one, I praise your name. And if it wasn't, Lord, I praise your name. Because what happens is we're considering the Father of mercies. We're considering that, Lord, it's it's all by your mercy. I, I don't deserve any of your goodness. I don't deserve... Lord, the the very fact that I am coming to you concerned is is, is a reality that you have shown incredible mercy to me. And and I don't deserve your mercy any more than he deserves your mercy or she deserves your mercy. But Lord, in your goodness, you came to me in mercy and you opened my eyes to the things of eternity. You opened my eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ and he's become fair to me. He's become lovely to me. He's become everything to me. And Lord, I didn't deserve that. So, Father, I come to you concerned about my loved one from a position of having received incredible mercies. So don't come with any demands. I don't come with any complaints. I just come, Lord, as one for mercy's sake. I, I hope that you had mercy on them as well. But, Father, whatever you do, you do all things well. You see, we can rest in God's sovereignty. We can rest in God's sovereignty. Abraham, in a very bold way, came to God as God was going to pour out wrath upon Sodom. And Abraham came to God and he, he, he was begging God for mercy upon Sodom. And you know that, that line of argumentation um, where Abraham was saying, if, you'll, if, you'll just have, if you find 45 or if you find 30 or whatever it is, then, then Lord, will you have mercy upon these people? But in the midst of that, Abraham says these words that are very, a great comfort to God's people. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And in a way, it's sort of a bold proclamation, right? He said, Lord, don't make a mistake here. Won't you do the right thing? But it's also a consolation for Abraham. That's where he ends up resting. If a judge of all the earth will do right. As David prayed in Psalm 119, Lord, I know, I've seen, I know that your judgments are right. And I know that in your faithfulness you've afflicted me. Can you say that this morning in the midst of that lesser grief? Can you say in the midst of your circumstances today, Lord, I know that your judgments are right for where I am today. I know that in your faithfulness that you have afflicted me, I know that the judge of all the earth will do right. Friends, if we had our choice of kings, if we had our choice of judges, we would always choose God. We would always choose God if we could see what God sees. You see, part of the wrestling here, and, and just to be honest about it, part of the wrestling is, I wish I was the king. <laughs> I wish I had the controls for a little while. I would do things a whole lot differently. But friends, when I say that, I'm always saying that from this very, very, very limited tunnel vision that really can't see nearly as wide as what I think I can see. And I think I have this great understanding of, of what would be good and what would be beautiful and what would be just and what would be right. But if I could see as God sees, I would say, God, you be the king. And friend, since I can't see like God sees, but I know that he's God, I can by faith say, God, you be the king. You be the king. I'm happy resting with you as the king. We would always choose for God to be the king, for God to be the judge. We can see as God sees. Let me say this too. When we are blessed, when we are blessed, 
to have God's sovereign purposes revealed to us, we always rejoice. Is that not true? Is that not true in your life? Think about the story of Joseph. If, you're just, if you just stay with Joseph in the prison, you see what a, what, a, what, a, what a thoughtless God. If you're only with Joseph in the pit, you say, what an unjust God. If you're only with Joseph when Potiphar's wife's lying about him, you go, where is God? But friends, when God, by His grace, blesses the whole of Genesis to be written, you say, what a God. What a God. What a God. What a perfect purposes. And friends, of course, the greatest example of that is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom none of us would have any hope of mercy unless Jesus Christ had gone to Calvary's tree and had by unjust measures of, uh, given uh, unjust judgment of men, given his life. Friends, if Calvary had not occurred, we would have no hope. But Calvary was well within the eternal purposes and plans of God for our great salvation. So when God's sovereignty is unveiled for us, we always rejoice. And so, friends, while we live with a veil over our eyes and with a smaller vision, let us by faith take great comfort that the judge of the earth always does right. He always does right. In fact, not just his salvation is right, but there's some comfort here as well. God's justice is right. Here, here's, a, here's a verse from Proverbs. I think it's Proverbs 11, verse 1. A false balance is abomination to the Lord. A false balance is abomination to the Lord. So, how does that bring us comfort? Here's how it brings us comfort. As the psalmist saying, Lord, if my right, if that, if that, if, 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 uh, if that, how's it go? Uh, so pity, Lord, if my soul were sent to hell, thy righteous law approves it well. But to go a step beyond that, in hell, where God's righteous judgments are being meted out, they're being meted out righteously. In other words, God will not cruelly or harshly, or uh, uh, harshly above measure, mete out justice in hell. But hell will be meted out at a perfect justice. There's some comfort in that. God is not just torturing to torture. God is not just taking some sort of sick, uh, sick, demented pleasure out of pouring out punishment, but the punishment is exactly as fits the offense because God's righteous. God's righteous. And even in a strange way, there is comfort to be found there. Let's move along quickly. There's comfort to be found from the Father of mercies, from the God who has given life. And life has been a gift from God that we're to enjoy the memories, but even more, the Father of salvation. And salvation is of the mercy of the Lord. There's also comfort to be found in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't there? Our faith points to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. And there's great, there's great comfort to be found in Him. You see, when God saves you from your sins and God reveals Jesus Christ to you, the work of faith is such that Jesus Christ becomes the greatest treasure of our lives. Is that not true? Christ is all I wish or want. Christ is the greatest treasure. Oh, Christ, He is the fountain 
the deep, sweet well of love. The broad eyes, not our garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my Savior's face. You see, when, when, when Job experienced his great calamity, Job's wife said, curse God and die. But Job, with the eye of faith, said, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Why could Job say? Because there was a greater treasure that Job had than even his own goodwill. Paul expresses this very well when he says in Philippians 1, as he's in prison, he says, here's my earnest expectation. By the way, you can't just conjure this up. This is the Holy Spirit pointing us to Jesus Christ. Okay? This is, this is a spiritual thing happening here. It's not like we can say, here's three steps to comfort and you just have comfort. No, no, no. This is a spiritual work occurring within. But can you say this with Paul? According to my earnest expectation and my hope. So where am I looking? Where's my hope? My greatest hope is, is that Christ might be magnified in my body. Whether by life or by death. That's something, isn't it? There's comfort to be found, Paul found it, in the desire for Christ to be magnified, for Christ to be exalted, for Christ to be honored, for Christ to be praised above all. This is what Aunt Emily said right after the death of Uncle Lewis. She said, she said, my greatest desire is for, this is people who had prayed for their brother for, I mean, they're all like 80 years old, 75, 80 years old. I've been praying for him for a long, long time. He turned from the Lord when he was in his early 20s. So for 50 plus years, been praying for him, looking for opportunities to talk to him. And then he, he passes away and she says, my greatest desire is for God to be glorified. The deep desire I've had for my brother brings out the greater desire for God to be magnified, and it has given me joy. She said, God, you will be magnified in the salvation of the righteous and the just punishment of the wicked. Can you say that? Can you find comfort there? My greatest desire for Jesus Christ to be magnified. I'm not as concerned about what happens with with me and my hopes, my desires, my wishes, but I want Jesus to be honored. And he will be honored because God has seen to it that Jesus Christ will be honored. Every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's my greatest desire. But, but more than that, Jesus, Jesus is not only our object of our desire and we want to be honored and prayed. But Jesus Christ is a friend for sinners, isn't he? He's our friend. Jesus comes into focus as our only hope and consolation. This is what happened when many were leaving Jesus. His his words were too hard and Jesus turned to the disciples and says, Well, are you going to go as well? And Peter said, Lord, where am I going to go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Let me me read this to you from Anne Emily. She said, there's been so many confusing questions in all this. And she said, one thing she said was, you know, she said, she said, Lewis was the one who was introducing services at church. And Zach's the one who was lazy. He was reading a book. And she said, then he, Zach's, Zach's been a preacher of the gospel for these years. And Lewis has turned from the Lord. She said, there's so many, so many confusing questions. 
But in all these confusing questions, they have caused her to cling closer to the Lord because He has the answers. This gives great comfort in losing her brother because God knows where he is. So the Lord is bringing, being ministered to her in a closer way. This is what Proverbs says. There is, there is, there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. We sang it this morning. Jesus knows. Jesus knows all my sorrows. Jesus is my kind and compassionate friend. Jesus weeps with Martha and Mary at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus is, a high, Jesus is not like the human high priest, but Jesus is a high priest who is touched. He's moved with the feeling of our infirmities. Friends, the, 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 the pressures of life and the sadness and the sorrows of life are meant to press us more and more and more into our union that we have with Jesus Christ. God, by His grace, by His regenerating work, has, has, has joined us to His Son, that which He has joined us to Him from eternity past in prospect by His grace. He has joined us to His Son in a real and living way here in this life so that we are never without Jesus. He's in us. We are in Him. We are bound together so we can come before the throne of God and say, God, I'm bringing to you with me Jesus right now. He's my intercessor, he's my friend, he's my redeemer, he's my advocate. It's that real to be joined with Christ. It means when we come to temptation and Satan is assaulting our, uh, assaulting our hearts, we can come to temptation with the reality, Satan, you don't have a hold of me because I am here with Jesus. I'm united to him. He is my victor. He, he destroyed you, Satan, at the cross and he, I am reigning with him right now. I'm with Jesus. That's what it means to be united to Christ. I'm with him. We're joined together. We are as one. And so he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Praise the Lord for the comfort that Jesus' presence has with us and his salvation brings to us. And then finally, the Holy Spirit's very name is Comforter. Now he brings comfort in a couple of different ways. Let me tell you, let me tell you one very quickly and then we'll get to the last one. This is a strange sort of comfort, but it is a comfort to the child of God. Solomon said... It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. That's true for a child of God, isn't it? It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. One of the things the Holy Spirit's work is to do is to convict you of sin. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's to comfort you with the presence of Christ, but He's also here to convict you of sin. Are there any, is there anybody today that's being convicted of sin? If you are, that's the Holy Spirit pricking your heart that I need to repent, I need to turn, I need to change in some ways. And the reality of, the reality of eternity is one of those very sobering places that we come to where the Holy Spirit uses this to convict us of sin. So that we're not turned toward the one that died, we're turned to ourselves now. The Bible says that in the fear of the Lord is wisdom. The psalmist says that self-examination is a very good thing for us to engage in. Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of life everlasting. And we come to the death of a loved one, especially one who does not give evidence of being a child of God or doesn't give clear evidence of that. Oh, how it should prick our own hearts. Lord, search me. Try me. 
And you know there's a comfort there? There's a comfort in repentance. There's a comfort in not continuing in our own old stubborn ways. There really is. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But let me close this way. Let's turn to Romans 8. Romans 8. Oh, the Holy Spirit's comfort. What a blessing it is to read this passage. Romans 8, beginning in verse 14. Let me read verse 13. Romans 8, verse 13. For if ye live after the flesh, you'll die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. He's brought you into Himself, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit is urging our cries to our Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's so much there. Let me just point you to a couple of things. One of them is this. The Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that we are the heirs of God. That we're going to receive an inheritance from God. And the inheritance that we receive is going to be the inheritance that Christ receives. And so here's what this is saying. It is saying, you will receive everything. There is nothing lacking that you could ask for. You're going to receive the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Listen to this. Can you imagine? Because here's, here's, the, here's the practical reality. I don't know if I can truly enjoy heaven if my loved one's not there. Wait a minute. Are you saying that when you get to heaven and you receive all that Christ has been given, you'll say, can I have one more thing? There's no way. So what is this telling us, friends? It's telling us the truth of Psalm 17, 15. I shall be satisfied. I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. See, all these perplexing things, all of them, vanish the moment that we see Christ. This is the truth. That's how every tear is wiped away. It's not that we have a, it's not that we have a, a, a magnet that erases our memory. It's that we have, a, we, have this, this, we have this incredible vision, this incredible reality of seeing Christ that solves all our sorrows. All of them. So the moment we see Christ, every tear, every tear wiped away, every burden unleashed, every single one. That's the way the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. You see, we can't imagine a moment like that. You could be enjoying the best moment of your life. And then this plaguing thought goes, oh, it's going to end tomorrow. I'm going to fly back or whatever it is. Or what if we have a wreck on the way home? Or what if my heart, heart stops beating? You know how this goes, right? 
We are never able to fully, this is part of the problem of people's thinking, they want to have full enjoyment now. We're never able to fully enjoy life now. Not fully. There's always questions. But here's the reality. Here's the, this, this way, the Spirit is ministering to your spirit in sorrow. Lord, this is all wiped away. I will be satisfied. I don't know how, but I will be satisfied when I wake in thy likeness. No regrets, no mourning. Every tear wiped away, every sorrow forever gone. The Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, is found in the most basic things that we know about God, isn't it? It's found in His perfect justice, His giving of life, His great salvation, His perfect judgment, the gift of His Son, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you're seeking to comfort yourself in any other place, if you're hoping that things are just going to get better and it's all going to be well now, that's a fake comfort. It's not going to happen. Life is not going to necessarily just get better now. But that doesn't mean you have to live in distress. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Trust Him. Walk with Him. Listen to Him. What a blessing. I keep telling you, what a blessing it is as a younger person to be taught by older people through watching their example in times of great sorrow. Listen, some of you think, this has got nothing to do with me today. It will. It will. It probably does right now, but it will. May you find comfort in the only place that comfort is found, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the blessing of being able to sing your word today and open your word and to think about um, that which the world would rather just um, just uh, ignore and move on. Father, thank you that we don't, we don't have to move on. But we can stop for a moment and just say, Lord, this is the reality of the situation. But Father, thank you that you have not placed the judgment in our, into our hands. But what you have given us is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we, uh, may we Lord, be those who are both comforted by, but also minister to comfort to those who are in any tribulation with the same comfort by which we've been comforted to the praise and the honor of Jesus Christ. And Father, may praise be found on our lips. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.